So good afternoon and welcome back to the STEM T podcast, where we talk about science and how it intersects with mentoring, diversity, equity, inclusion, and STEM education. Today, we have an amazing professor, Dr. Streets, who will be able to talk to us about a variety of things, his research, his outlook for the future for science, and then also how he's now taken on a new role around some topics that he will discuss because I'm not stealing anybody's thunder. And we'll also talk about how that actually has an outlook along with the political landscape and science and hopefully get some general advice for trainees that are about to make that transition around the academic lifestyle or industry and how they can be more impactful. So thank you, Dr. Streets, for joining us and welcome to STEM Tea Podcast. And could you tell us who you are? Absolutely. First of all, thank you so much, Professor Hinton, for having me on the show. It's a pleasure to join you for this conversation. My name is Aaron Streets. I'm a professor, associate professor of bioengineering at the University of California in Berkeley. I'm also a core faculty member of the Center for Computational Biology, which is a graduate group, and the biophysics graduate group. So my lab has students from all three of those programs. And I'm also currently the vice chair for undergraduate affairs and curriculum in, our, in the bioengineering department. And as you mentioned, re- was recently appointed faculty advisor for excellence and equity in the newly minted College of Computing, Data Science, and Society here at UC Berkeley. So that's a new advisory role that I have. That's awesome. Congratulations on your new advisory role. And could you tell us a little bit more about your research and what your research program is about, and maybe some of the grants that you're funded by, and what is the outlook of your laboratory? Yeah, absolutely. That'll give a good background. So my academic background is physics and applied physics, and I sort of migrated into the field of bioengineering during my PhD when we started to realize how powerful innovations in engineering and technology development are when it comes to studying new biological questions. And so my lab is really kind of geared towards the development of new tools, so new hardware tools, software tools, and molecular tools to study how cells can read and interpret their genome. And so specifically, we use techniques such as microfluidic devices, nonlinear optical microscopy, and high-throughput DNA sequencing to try to make measurements on the single cell level so we can understand how cells are regulating their genome, how that regulation turns into transcription, and we can quantify the cell's transcriptome, and how that gene expression profile for a single cell manifests itself in its proteome, its morphology, and other functional characteristics or functional phenotypes that might be important for understanding the cellular composition of tissues and organs and even whole organisms. That is really, really cool. So I do have a couple of just quick questions about your academic career that I find just extremely interesting. And I just want people to highlight the diversity around the globe. A lot of times people pick postdocs that are in the States, but yours is from Peking University, which is in Beijing, China. So my question to you is, do you speak Mandarin or Taiwanese or did you have time to go to Taiwan as well? And the other question is, why did you choose your postdoc there? Yeah, that's a great question. So I actually studied Mandarin Chinese in high school and a little bit through college and a little bit on the side in graduate school. And so when I was thinking about postdocs, one of the things that struck me, I had some ideas of what I wanted to study. I wanted to combine the work I had done with microfluidics in the Quake Lab at Stanford with new developments in nonlinear optical imaging. So that was kind of the topic I was looking for, but I also was really stunned and impressed by the experience that my colleagues in graduate school had who had come from other countries to pursue research in the U.S., right? Here you are doing your PhD or your postdoc. 
which is in a lot of cases, some of the most challenging sort of academic environment you might find yourself in. And at the same time, these colleagues of mine were doing that in a different language, in a different culture, in a place that was far from home. I thought that that was a really amazing experience that I didn't want to miss out on in my own academic journey. So I started considering international postdocs. And it just so happened that a colleague of mine who had finished his postdoctoral work at Stanford was starting his lab back at Peking University, where you know where he's from in China. This is Professor Yang Yu Huang. And so I reached out to him to see if there was any opportunities in his lab at, at Peking University. And the kind of the rest was history. I got an international postdoctoral fellowship called the Whitaker Biomedical Engineering Postdoctoral Fellowship. It was a fellowship that was funding a lot of international biomedical engineering scholars for many years, actually, recently sunset. And so that that's how I got into it. And it just so happened that at this institute that was then called the Biodynamic Optical Imaging Center at Peking University, they were doing microfluidics, nonlinear optical microscopy, and they had just developed a new genome sequencing facility. And so that gave me the opportunity to really integrate some of my passions with some really new emerging techniques in single-cell genomics. I was going to go there for two years. I ended up funding another two years with a Ford postdoctoral fellowship and did a whole four years in Peking University. You know, my Chinese did get a little bit better. I did visit, I did have the opportunity to visit Taiwan when I was out there. And they speak also, there's an indigenous dialect in Taiwan, but they also speak Mandarin Chinese as well. And so that was an incredible experience, both professionally, academically, and just personally. It's awesome. So do you still speak Mandarin today? Do you still take time to practice? Or is it the second nature to you now still? Which means my Chinese is okay, but I don't have a lot of time to practice these days. <laughs> got you, got you. Yeah, I mean, I know a little bit of Mandarin, but not very much. Like, well, I need, you know, like things yeah. like that, very small things. Yeah. Or yeah. I think that is highly perfect, but I might not have said it as much. I've yeah. stopped speaking as much. My graduate experience was in all Chinese lab, and it was absolutely phenomenal. Wow. And so one of the things that my graduate PhD, Yang Shu, said was, I won't teach you Chinese, but if you have time, you know, immerse yourself. Immerse yourself yeah. in culture, right? You know, so yeah, really exactly. Not. Yeah, so, and, so. I mean, these days, as you know, Chinese is an international language. A huge number of people around the world speak Mandarin, and you know, I'd love to incorporate that more into my day to day. But it, it just was such a great experience—not only the language component, but just kind of living in another place outside of my comfort zone, exactly. and sort of pushing the limits of what is normal for me, so that I can kind of understand where different people might be coming from. And I think that's something that we often forget while being here in the U.S. is that we're kind of more, I guess, an, one of the epicenters for how most things are considered the norm. And we yeah. often forget not to actually immerse ourselves in other languages, immerse ourselves in other experiences that are not the traditional, if you will. And so that was one of the things that when you talked, it, it hinted on the norm. And I wanted to kind of talk about that. Yeah. So our expectations in science is, oh, you know, do a postdoc. Oftentimes, you know, a lot of maybe individuals that are from unique backgrounds don't think about doing a postdoc outside the U.S. And mm -hmm. I wanted to kind of get a little bit more advice about your mindset of where you could help other people kind of be a little bit more intentional around how they're picking postdocs, also faculty positions as well. 
Yeah, I mean, I, it's a really good question. And I think the landscape has changed over the past 10 years. When I was finishing up my PhD back in 2012, you know, I knew that I wanted to continue doing research. I wasn't 100% sure that I wanted to and or could be a faculty, a tenure track faculty position at a research one university. I certainly had it on the radar, but it wasn't something that was like my destiny necessarily. And so it made a lot of sense to do a postdoc at the time, even though I wasn't sure what the next step was going to be. I would say nowadays, especially in our field, the biomedical industry, from a financial situation, it's a harder justification to do a postdoc just because. There's lots of environments in which you can pursue high quality research after your PhD and get compensated for it and also advance your career in a direction that could be a very fruitful research-based career. There's so many private institutes and private companies that are doing research at the highest levels. And so it feels to me, although this is just a data point of one, this is just my perspective, it feels to me that more than ever, the postdoc is the route to becoming a, a faculty member, a tenure-track faculty member, but it's not necessarily the only way to do to continue to do research after your PhD. And I think it's important to think about that because more and more people that I interview for postdoc positions in my lab end up getting a really fantastic position in industry that pays twice as much and where they can publish. And, and I think that's an important thing to decide if you're open to non-academic track career paths. That being said, when I was thinking about my next steps at grad school, the postdoc was a wonderful way to travel. And so even though I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do next, I knew that if I used a postdoc as an opportunity to do research somewhere else, it would be a win-win because even if I ended up going veering away from the academic route, at least I would have had the chance to spend a couple of years abroad and sort of justify doing research in a different context. It's a very unique time in your life when you can make decisions like that. That's actually a really interesting point. So not only about the travel, but how you intentionally were able to pair what you love with what you wanted to do in your goals. Yeah. So now that we're on that goal track and we're getting back now to your faculty position, what were the things that you had to assess coming back to the States to make sure that you acquired the position that you wanted? And the reason I bring this up is for the general audience is because a lot of times everything that's in the U.S. is seen as like the U.S. brand. So this is good enough. Right. Yeah. And it's really it's a really unique path and a novel path when individuals from the States go abroad to do a postdoc then come back for a faculty position. And so that outlook may be a little bit different. And so I know that you have amazing publications, amazing funding record, but the key thing is how do you navigate that process? Because it becomes a little bit more different. How are you receiving yeah. this information? Yeah. I mean, I think an important transition in any academics career path is that transition from thinking you might want to do this if you can cut it to knowing that this is the job for you and feeling confident about your ability to do the job. And I think two things have to happen for that transition to process successfully. I mean, for one, I think it's important to have a better objective understanding of your ability to do science and to mentor and to run a research lab. And I think that, you know, over the course of my postdoc, one of the important things that happened was not only did I gain an incredible amount of sort of confidence in my ability to run a research program, but I realized that I could have a lot of impact outside of my lab as well through teaching, mentoring, and also service and leadership at the university and level and beyond. And it was that realization that made me think, okay, this is the job I want to do. 
at the same time as you're going through that maturation of understanding of your own abilities, the other critical component that I think a lot of people underestimate is understanding what the actual nuts and bolts are of applying to and attaining a tenure track faculty position. And just having knowledge about that process can completely change one's perspective about their own qualifications because it's one thing to know what you're capable of, but it's an equally important thing to know what other people are looking for. And if you don't have either of those things, you can't really navigate the career path. And so I was fortunate enough to be involved in a graduate level fellowship at Stanford called the DARE Fellowship, Diversifying Academia and Recruiting Excellence. And this was a fellowship that was pan-campus, so it wasn't just STEM. And it was basically about providing us with information about the different kinds of academic career opportunities that exist, from Research One to teaching college to state school and community college, so that we could understand different endpoints of our journey. Because, you know, some people want to teach, some people want to work at a liberal arts college, some people want to do Research One, and they're different resumes that will be more successful at these different impactful types of higher educational institutes. The other thing they did was they went through the process of what an application looks like. And I think that, you know, a big transition for me was talking to people that were starting to host faculty searches, just diving in the deep end and starting to write up your own dossier, research statement, personal statement, teaching statement, so that you can start to realize not only what you're capable of, but how to communicate that to people and what it is that search committees are looking for when they're trying to decide who will be their next colleague. And I think that the more information that we can gather about that process, the more confident we can be when pursuing that career path. So then I have a couple other questions. I noticed that on your website that you also showcase a lot of your alumni. And so I was wondering, could you kind of tell us and highlight some of your best mentorship experiences that you've had through the years and maybe where some of them have have landed so that the audience can kind of see not only are you a great scientist, but now that we're talking about your new role, how you've guided individuals through mentorship. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great question. And in fact, for me, the success of my mentees is, has literally been both the most fulfilling, but also I think the most accurate metric of the impact of our research program. You know, if we're doing good stuff, then our mentees are successful. And if our mentees are successful, that means that we're doing good stuff. You know what I mean? And so it's really been, I would say, easily the most rewarding part of the job so far. I started my lab in 2016 and I got tenure just a year ago. It has been graduating graduate students. Thank you. So we've graduated six PhD students, four master's students, and almost 10 undergraduates at this point. Wow. And the undergraduate students who have come to the lab have landed in PhD programs that span Stanford, Berkeley, UCLA, Georgia Tech, MIT. We have somebody at Penn right now. We have somebody at Cornell. That's just off the top of my head. The graduate students have also done really well. And we have about a 50-50 split of people that have stayed in industry or stayed in academia or continued on to industry. So we have one student that is now doing a postdoc at Broad Institute at MIT. We have one student, graduate student, that's now a scientist at 10X Genomics, a, a local single cell biotech company. We have another graduate student is a scientist at Garden Health, which is a local biotech company that does liquid biopsies and cell-free DNA diagnostics for cancer. We have a student that's now working at the Stanford Linear Accelerator as a research scientist. And my first PhD student, 
just started his lab at Stanford Genetics Department this summer as wow. a tenure track assistant professor. And so, yeah, I mean, it's been amazing. I've been fortunate enough to have students come to the lab who were, you know, kind of already rock stars to begin with. And the fact that we could provide resources and guidance to get them to the next level has been incredibly rewarding. That's amazing. So you say a keyword rock stars. What happens when they're not rock stars that are coming to your lab? What kind of support could you give them? And then also, how do you help them to discover who they are? Because sometimes undergrads, you know, they have an idea who they are because, you know, their parents have kind of told them or their mentors have said you should do this and they're choosing that. So yeah, it becomes twofold. What happens when, you know, you have a student that may be more interested in something else, but how do you still mentor them and cultivate towards their interests that they really are interested in? And yeah. also, how do you guide raw potential? They know they want to be in science, but, you know, it's a little, it's not smooth edges. It's not uh, smooth bends like a glycine. It's kind of chunky like a proline. Yeah, no, no, this is a great point. And, and I'm, I'm glad that you brought that up because when I, because when I said rock star, that people, that has a connotation, but maybe I should clarify because I mean something a little bit different. For me, I want to say everybody's a rock star, but I, I don't want to undermine the point. For me, a rock star is somebody that comes in with energy, with positivity. They don't have to know themselves yet. Like, I, you know, I wouldn't have called myself a rock star in graduate school. But what I did rock out on was we see the word passion. And I think that can intimidate people sometimes. But I would say a love or a curiosity for learning new things. I think some of the most important qualities for, let's say, a first year graduate student are an interest in in science, broadly, a curiosity, a little bit of independence. It doesn't mean you have to know everything, what to do next. But unlike undergrad, when you get to the PhD level, you're not doing homework for me. (laughs) You know, you're doing this for your PhD. And I think it's important to take ownership of that. And that's why when we evaluate PhD applicants, one of the things that we look for is people that have a little bit of research experience and have at least had a taste of what independent research looks like, because you could be incredibly bright, you could be incredibly determined, you could be hardworking, but if you don't want to do this, it's going to be really hard. And if you don't like it, it might not be worth it. There's plenty of professions that you can pursue with a bachelor's in science that are they can get you to incredibly successful careers and an incredible amount of happiness. And I think the number one thing that we're pursuing when we're scientists is happiness. Obviously, we want to, now this is true. This is how I think about it. We want to have impact. You know, we want to change the world. We want to make discoveries. And for those of us in the biomedical sciences, like you and I, we want to impact human health. But we're doing this because we also want to live a life that we can be proud of and that we can enjoy. And this career that we've chosen, science, academic research, it's too hard if you don't like it. You know what I mean? It has to be driven from the point of, you know, you have to come into work every day with a smile on your face. Trust me, I've had my days where I'm trying not to go in. But overall, it has to be something that you want to do. And so when I say rock star, all I need is somebody that wants to do this. It's harder for me to get somebody to want. I mean, in my undergraduate classes, I can get students excited about the research that we're doing. You know, I have my lectures that can try to convince somebody that the thing that you know, that this area of bioengineering is is really changing the world and I can try to make it fun. But more and more, I'm, I'm really leaning on students' own enjoyment of the material. And I feel my job is a way of providing resources and guidance and mentorship for somebody who's an adult who wants to do it, 
right? So that's kind of how I've been thinking about it. But it, but if you want, if you want that, if you're interested, if you're curious, if you're open to feedback, then you're a rock star, in my opinion. I see, and that's good because I'm glad that you clarified what you meant because a lot of times individuals have different meanings for different words, and we're saying yeah. the same thing. But a lot of times the colloquialisms that we have within the United States mean different things at different. That's people. right. No, you're right about that. hundred percent. So I'm glad. Language that. is important. Yes. As you is. know. <laughs> it, it is. I, I, I'm finding that out more and more. I'm finding that out. And, it, and it's more. important and it changes. You're right. It does. It does. It does. It, it, you know, vocabulary changes. And so, you know, that's important too. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. So I know that I've seen on Twitter and other platforms about, or I guess X now, how you've gone out with your lab or like I've heard things in passing and conversation being at conferences. And I was wondering, what do you do to mentor them outside the lab? Like what type of fun events do you have? Because I think sometimes some laboratories only focus on just the science and mm-hmm. don't focus on the holistic training experience. And I'm wondering mm-hmm. if you could highlight a time that you've gone out with your lab more recently yeah. and what what that entails. Yeah, no, this is a good point. And, you know, I remember for me, doing my PhD was really one of the most important sort of phases of my life in terms of growth, both intellectually, but also just as a person. And the relationships that I formed my PhD are still some of the closest relationships I have, both professionally, again, and personally. And I feel like our PhD mentors can be some of the most important professional relationships that we have. That being said, I do think that it's okay to have a range of personal relationships with with your research mentors. I mean, you know, I think of myself as maybe a primary mentor of the PhD students and postdocs in my lab, but certainly not the only only mentor, right? There's there's information that they might might be better sought out in others spaces in for me. And so I want to, it's always important to me to make sure to, to sort of recognize that balance and also to just differentiate between the professional relationships that I have with my trainees, but also to understand that if I wanted to be a supervisor of an employee, I could go into a company and that this is a more holistic mentorship opportunity. And I can give people, you know, at least my perspective from my experience in, in career and, and sort of navigating the scientist identity. And so to, to get to your question, I mean, we do a lot of things. We go out to dinner regularly. We go out to lunch regularly. We're fortunate to have a lot of support from uh, not only federal agencies, but some of these private foundations, uh, as you know, the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, for example. And so that gives us the opportunity to really create an environment where students can feel supported and come to a place where you know, they have the opportunity to make friends, but not a, the requirement, right? Because it is ultimately a job. One of the things that has really, you know, I really enjoyed over the past few years has been how the lab has evolved without me in some cases and how people have begun to form relationships and pursue activity outside the lab without me organizing it. And I think that's a really, a, for me, a really good sign of, of sort of a continuity and and an environment that people can really thrive in. Because I remember some of the, you know, the most amazing relationships I had in graduate school kind of formed without the guidance of my PI, right? And the other thing that's really important about that is, while it's very important to me that everybody in the lab is nice and friendly and supportive and positive, 
it's not important to me that everybody has the same idea of what's fun, right? If people want to go out and, and have a drink, for example, that's cool, but I don't want to make it a requisite that you have to enjoy a cocktail to in order to interact socially with the people in the lab. And, you know, I want to I want to create an environment where people from a lot of different backgrounds could come and share their music, share their cuisine, you know, share their cultural celebratory rituals or not and feel comfortable with any amount of interaction that they want. Or if somebody wants to come in and think about this as a job and get their stuff done and go home to their family, I want that to be okay as well. Interesting. So one of the things that you said is without kind of saying it's freedom of choice. So Mm -hmm. I feel about what people call alternative careers kind of brought it up. And that was one of the reasons why I really wanted to have you on the podcast is that you celebrate the unique thought process that people go through to pick their individual careers. And oftentimes that can be looked down upon as when we are as mentors, we're supposed to support the vision of what the trainee wants in their training experience. And we help them be guided to that place, not to where we make clones of ourselves or clone Mm -hmm. mentorship where that can be, you know, such a problem. And I'm wondering if you could kind of talk about freedom of choice and the thought process of discovering where individuals want to be in their career. Then I have a couple other questions as well. Yeah, that's that's a really good question because, you know, from a career standpoint, I'm providing, let's say, let's just focus on PhD students for the time being as an example. Could postdocs, you know, like we talked about before, may have more purpose in their career at that point because they finished their PhD and they're maybe going towards a professor position or going towards a group leader position in industry. But but let's say for a PhD student, I think there's a very broad range of things that you can do after your PhD. Mm. And, you know, as we kind of alluded to, for me, I don't have a preference, you know, like just from the research, I mean, from the industry or academia dichotomy, I'm somewhat agnostic. I mean, I, I really enjoy it when students love this research so much and love the environment that we create so much that they want to continue that in an academic place. But I also think that there's, especially in our field, and I say our field, you know, in the sort of biomedical sciences, there's so much that you can do outside of a a campus these days to have impact that, you know, I want to make those opportunities available for people that come to my lab as well. And I think, you know, there's been a lot of discussion among colleagues of mine lately about this sort of drain from academic research into the private sector. And and what does that mean for the future of academic research and so forth? I personally think it's a really great thing because if people are thinking that a PhD in bioengineering, for example, is valuable because I can then go work in the biotech industry or the biomedical industry, that's a good thing. That means that we're training productive members of the scientific community. And while the way in which we might pursue those, that impact can change over time, it still means that we're doing a we're providing a valuable service back to society. And so 100%, you know, I want to encourage students to have a freedom of career choice. Now that being said, not every career choice needs a five to seven year PhD, right? And so I do think it's important that students decide independently, but with guidance from their mentors, is this commitment something that I want to do? And I remember when I when I was doing my PhD. I was driven primarily by wanting to learn, but by wanting to be in one place for five years plus just to learn more. And it wasn't necessarily, I want to get my degree so I can go do X, Y, or Z. It was like, well, right now I just want to learn more so I could, you know, learn more about what I want to do. If somebody knows that they want to go in this other direction, let's make sure that a PhD is the right way to go in that direction because it's, 
a lot of time and not a lot of pay. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. uh, right. And so it's just it's a, an amazing opportunity. It can be an amazing opportunity, but but it also it's it's a commitment. It's a commitment. So I guess one thing I wanted to talk about too is kind of leadership. Since you've taken on that leadership role, could you kind of discuss what was your thought process about with your family, with your laboratory, about what does that mean? And then also, could you walk us through how you prepared yourself for this position or how you're currently preparing yourself? And then the reason I ask this is because a lot of times in the academy, we're presented with opportunities and young trainees and also young assistant professors may have all of these great things coming across their plate, but it's important to really understand timing as well as understanding how you go about that journey. And so I'd love to talk mm-hmm. to you a little bit about that. Yeah, this is a really good question and one that I think about almost on the daily basis. I mean, when I was in my postdoc and was thinking about the next steps, I knew that I wanted to do research. I love science. And I was identifying a bunch of places that I can do that. But the thing that really clicked when I started thinking about staying in academia and going to a university, specifically a public university, was that the opportunity to have impact outside of the lab. You know, I knew I wanted to have impact in the lab, but you know how hard that is to predict. An experiment might not work. An idea might not work. And the more and more I was thinking about that variability, the more and more I was confident that I could and can have impact in the classroom as a mentor and as a leader in a public university. And so that opportunity is one that I thought I could, you know, leverage my particular experience. I'm black. I was one of few black physics majors in in undergrad, one of few black applied physics PhDs in grad school. The only black person in my institute, my postdoc, but that for different reasons, you know. And that gives an an opportunity to have an outsized impact in this space because we're so underrepresented. And this campus provides a lot of very powerful platforms to impart change, you know, through the one-on-one mentorship in front of a classroom, but then also at the at the campus level, being part of committees and taking leadership roles and developing new new policies, developing new programming. And this faculty advisor for excellence and equity in the College of Computed Data Science and Society is another one of those platforms. The challenge, however, is, as you pointed out, that there's actually infinite platforms once you find yourself on a college campus. There's infinite committees, infinite opportunities to mentor, to be on a qualifying exam, to be on a dissertation committee, to be an informal mentor of students. There's infinite opportunities to impart change. There's lots of policies that are flawed. There's admissions committees. And so where's the time? And I told myself, you know, when I was getting tenure, I had a lot of advice from from senior mentors of mine that said, you know, you have to learn how to say no. You've heard this mantra. You learn how to say no to these requests for your time and service. Because once you get onto a campus and once you're an assistant professor, all these people start asking you to help. Yeah. And the fact that you can help is really powerful. And you want to say, yes, I can, you think I can help. I can help. You start saying yes to everything and you don't have enough time. So I've gotten much better at only saying yes to things that I can particularly and specifically impact. I've gotten a lot better at saying no to things that other people can do. But as good as I've gotten to declining requests for my service, I've also, after tenure, have been asked to do exponentially more things. And so I'm still saying yes to things at a higher rate than I ever have, you know, while also saying no to things at a higher frequency than I ever have. And then the question becomes, well, when do you have time for research? 
Exactly. When do you have time for family? When do you have time for teaching? Right. And this is the, one of the ultimate questions of an academic, right? How do you balance all these things? You know, I don't have a lot of advice. I mean, I think it's very important to do things that you want to do yeah. and to not do things that you don't want to do, <laughs> right? It sounds obvious, but it's not trivial. I think it's very important to do things that only you can do, yeah. right? And to not do things that anybody can do because there are also a lot of faculty on campus and a lot of people that may or may not be carrying the same service load that you're carrying. And so you don't have to feel compelled to say, yeah. And then once, you know, once you get, especially when you get tenured, you start getting requests from off campus, mm. study section, review panels, advisory boards. And some of these are very important places that you can have a lot of impact. And others are very important places that you can have a lot of impact, but other people could too. And the work is never finished. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I agree. Science never ceases to stop. And I think that's something as a young trainee, a young, you know, assistant professor, you can think of, uh, you just for the general audience and, and of course myself, that science never sleeps. Science is always going, but the question is, will you be around for it? Yeah. And that is something yeah. I think is so important. On the note, you've mentioned so many incredible nuggets along the way. But one of them was the ratio at which you're asked more. And then you talked about selection without kind of saying it. One of the things that you said towards the end of what your statements were about was that you have an exponential amount of more. You're saying no a lot more. But then you started to say, well, there's study section. There's these specific requests where I can make a lot of impact. And there's requests where... I know others can make an impact. So mm-hmm. this question now, this, you know, kind of remind people what we're listening to is really to kind of talk about that in part. You talked about other people making impact in those areas. So then how do you amplify others? How mm. do you help the people that have asked you to do these things to be interested in other people? And then mm. you consider criteria for selection of things that are specific to your skill set that really could enhance your career, but also mm. take a, a considerable amount of time against your research. So how yeah. is that specific set of asks? Yeah, I'll, I'll answer the second question first, because this is an important one. Things that I say yes to should, and I don't always follow this, but things that I say yes to should be something that I can uniquely contribute to, that my participation in that service will enhance their goals and their potential impact more than a random sample of somebody else would. And also that it will feed back into my career goals to some significant degree as well, right? So it has to kind of, I need to be having impact and it needs to be something that I want to do, something that is the reason why I'm doing this position. And, And I think that second one is an important thing because, you know, when you jump into this whirlwind of running a lab and becoming a tenure track faculty, a lot of that, you kind of start to forget. There's so many things that you could do and so many opportunities to have impact. It's easy to kind of forget what were the reasons why, you know, you got into this first place. It doesn't mean that they can't change. And so I have to constantly check in with myself. Is this one of my goals? Is the impact that, that this committee might have or that this opportunity might have aligned with my goals? And if it does, will it feed back into my career and amplify my platform? stabilize my career, make my life better, essentially, make my make my career opportunities better, leverage the opportunities that I already have. And it's not like a systematic or quantitative way to answer those questions, but I do find that that's important. 
your first question about amplifying others, it, it's actually interesting because let's say somebody asks you to do something, review a paper, sit on a panel, sit on an advisory board, and they say, and then they say, also if you can't, can you do you know somebody else who can? Yeah. And I go back and forth when because that for me, any obstacle to responding an email will make me procrastinate to responding to that, you know, and then I find that if I wait too long before responding, I feel more pressure to respond in the affirmative because now the person's waiting on me. And so if I have to come up with an elaborate explanation for why I'm not able to do something or help the person figure out who other people might be, then that might make me come back to that email later and skip it. And so sometimes for some requests, I don't provide any other people's names, but if it's an opportunity, if it's a speaking engagement, something that will feed back to a career, but I just can't make it, then in those cases, I have a list of of colleagues, people that I've met at various conferences, people that I've met through various interactions, like the ones that you and I have had for the Chan Zuckerberg Science Diversity Leadership Award. I'll have a list, an active list going where I could say, you know who would be great for that? But it really has to do with how valuable that opportunity is. You know, and I rarely will just forward on a request for a study section unless I think that that's an opportunity for that person I'm suggesting. Interesting. I'm making a note of your comments for my own. Yeah. So I think that was actually really interesting. So one of the things that I want to talk about is kind of segueing into like what you do for fun. A lot of times as scientists, you know, we say we take breaks or we say Mm. we do this, right? But I think a lot of times we don't. I think we don't really know what it's like to relax, what it's like to like just, you know, read a book or read 35 Mm -hmm. books. I had a person on a podcast more recently that we just recorded and he was talking about, I read at least 35 books a year. That's kind of like my my soul. I was like, brother. I'm a slow reader. Yeah, I know what you mean. I just think that there's a lot of opportunity to do great things, but often we don't reflect on what does it mean to have goals and are we accomplishing those goals? I also heard as you were talking, it was refreshing to hear that, you know, does this align with my goals? And I'm wondering if two things, one, what is the question about, do you have fun? And the other thing is, while you're having fun, do you celebrate accomplishing some of your goals separately Mm -hmm. from the lab? Yes. I love listening to live music. I love going and looking at art. My wife and I love traveling. I mean, seeing the world. This this is a unique career where you could travel the world and talk about science. And, you know, every time we, we find ourselves in a new city, you know, we see what's the next art museum or National History Museum that they have. What kind of music do they got going on? What's a good restaurant? You know, we're big restaurant goers when we're traveling. And I love hiking and being outside. I mean, that's something that I need. As much of a city person as I am and and need to be a place where there's culture and food and music and activities and people doing stuff that, you know, gets your energy going. I also need to be able to get outside and, you know, be by the water or be in the mountains, you know, get my heart rate up. I think that it's easy when you're trying to get tenure to forget about your own health, your physical health and your mental health for that matter. But, and just how to prioritize, you know, sort of others and your career. And, you know, if your body's not there with you after tenure, then it's not worth it. 
And I really enjoy hanging out with with close friends and talking about things that are not science. And I really enjoy hanging out with scientists and talking about science and and not science and mentoring. And so, like, I love going to conferences because it kind of gets us out of our lab and our office and allows us to sort of think about our career and talk about our career and talk about life, you know, with other exceptional people who are intelligent and cultured and experienced. But, you know, the hard thing is balancing all that. Right. With a career, any career that's like the one that we have that's demanding and has the opportunity for this impact is going to require a lot of your time. And so, you know, I don't know what that balance is. You know, people say, oh, do you have a work life balance? And I don't even know how to answer that sometimes because, you know, this is not a job. This is it's a job. It is a job. It is a job and it has a paycheck. But, you know, it's not it doesn't start at nine and end at five all the time. And and so some of the stuff that I do for my career is really fuels my life. On the other hand, you've made up a really good point at the end with, with the end of your question, which is you have to be able to celebrate accomplishments. And I think you have to sometimes go out of your way to make a point of it. Tenure, I celebrated. We had a big dinner party. Actually, tenure is interesting because it's sort of this slow roll. Like you start, you start hearing back things about the committee, but it's not official until it's already official. You know what I mean? It's sort of, it almost is a year long process. And so there's not really a moment to celebrate. You you have to almost choose your moment. You're going to celebrate when you get the committee vote back, when you get the final letter from the Dean, whatever it is. And so I actually ended up celebrating a bunch of times along the way. And I think to your point, it's important to be intentional about that because you know, it's easy for things, for accomplishments just to kind of go by the wayside. And all of a sudden it's what's the next hurdle, what's the next challenge. And the fun part about this is putting some time in, doing the work, and then getting the reward, seeing the impact it had, getting the student who graduates and, and is going on to the thing that their dream job. I mean, these are all really, really important life moments. And so to your point, you have to be able to celebrate in the lab, but also outside of the lab, celebrate with your family and your friends' accomplishments that you've had. So I appreciate that question. Yeah, of course. I mean, I think that sometimes we don't think about it in the traditional sense of like, okay, this is going, it's always going, but we also have to realize that like, we do have a lot of luxury where we could stop, we could have a normal life. I think being a scientist is an elite job that's not very much discussed in a very traditional way. Yes. One of the things that you said was, you know, it's not a nine to five and it's true. It's an all the time. Yeah, it's also sometimes once you've made the assistant professor, associate professor, professor kind of track, it it amends to you opportunities that you previously didn't have to to be more holistic in your approach in life. And so I think that's something where we have to not take for granted because it's this rigid structure. It's just, do you have grants? Do you have papers? Are you yes. in your field? Do people respect you in your science? They don't have to yeah. respect you personally, but do they respect you in science, right? And then that's kind yes. of the criteria. And then all the other things are just kind of extra minutiae that we have to kind of do to be perfectly honest. Yeah. Yeah. And once, especially once you get tenure, you know, that's the brass ring. I mean, that's the opportunity to really design your life to have the impact you want and to kind of think outside of the box in a way that you know, some other nine to fives might not afford you because there's a bottom line, there's hours you got to punch, there's duties you got to fulfill. I mean, of course, there's those duties here. We got to teach students, you know, we got to fund our research, we got to graduate PhD students, we got to produce results. 
But we can do that in a lot of different ways and we can have impact. And I've seen a lot of colleagues really take that and, and have impact in unique and creative and innovative ways that has really given me a lot of inspiration. You know, some people, science communication, and that's what they focus on. Some people, you know, really focus on policy and communicating to the government and lobbying our government. You know, everybody. I've, so that's it's really exciting to think about all the possibilities of this career. I, I agree. I mean, I think that's one of the things that is also really cool is because it's opportunities that you create as well. And some of my close colleagues provide these wonderful platforms for other scientists to talk about their experiences. So thank you very much again for having me on the show. This is one of the things I really appreciate about your career is that so much of your actions are designated towards amplifying others and really leveraging your opportunities and your platform to really raise up everybody. And that's something that's really special. And I want to commend you for that. Thank you. I mean, I feel like, you know, I've been blessed to be good at a lot of things. And so for me, I think it's important to be able to share what we can do with others around whether it's research, whether it's, you know, a DEI type of thing, whether it's, you know, um, a mentoring opportunity or, you know, kind of bridging the gap in between understanding what STEM education to improve education and teaching is about as well. I think a lot of times we don't kind of amplify each other enough. I think we're mm-hmm. so focused on I and science that we miss the opportunity to really see self-reflection. We really see other people. I see people in science that are farther along, better than me. Mm-hmm. Or that, you know, I don't get. And I'm like, oh, yes, let's yeah. turn up. Let's celebrate you. Yes. And also at the same time, let me learn from you where I could mm-hmm. make something better, where I could do something. And I feel like the the refreshing mindset of what science is and where it could go we're not cultivating enough of and so that is really the idea and the essence behind the podcast it's great to talk about science but if we're not communicating it to the public it's great to talk about like diversity equity inclusion but if we really don't understand really what it is it's more about who are you as an individual and then where do you fit into a structure and a structure i think people sometimes don't really understand is like a department. And then in that department, how does that culture fit into the dean's office, which is like a college? And then how does that structure fit into the university? And then Mm -hmm. how does your university culture match others? And I think that's something where we don't think about when we're making decisions about things. Mm. And how does that culture also impact other institutions? And that impacts science. And so I think that's why I I give this platform in a, a very respectable way is because I want others to really be able to be open and honest, tell their stories, tell, you know, the, the challenges, the good things, but also at the same time, understanding who we are as a group of individuals. And we can see from across the podcast, we talk about different topics and how so many people are different. We've had individuals that have changed their life in the most positive direction and have acquired an R1. And it's mm-hmm. like, you know, Howard and John Hopkins. And then we've had people that have made changes to how we think about organization and science, too, and how their entire social media brand has skyrocketed, but it doesn't get to the bottom of who they are. It's a piece of who they are. And I think that's something that we often forget also is that people only think of as a scientist, but not as people. Mm. And I think that's where a lot of this science is not real or science, you know, needs to be this or we need to tell the story better. But if we can understand the person, and that is where I'm really hoping things go, I'm going to 
do another article to challenge the system pretty soon around how we use bioarchives and what is it used for. Interesting. I I really think that, you know, like just to share like a tiny bit, but like the key thing is that when we're training, we never think about revisions. We always think about final products. Yeah. So I oftentimes let like my postdocs and grad students write the first draft. I say, okay, the figures are there. We can put it on by archives. Yeah. And we can kind of use it as a training tool. Let's we'll see what Yeah, it as a draft and as a grow yeah. as a live document, as exactly. a dynamic document. Exactly. And I think that's where a lot of science is going, but we haven't kind of addressed the issues of like, okay, I wish we could kind of like put some like check marks on it. Like, okay, when you're reading this one, this is a draft. This is a draft that, you know, is for training purposes or this Mm -hmm. one is an approved draft that we want to be able to be showcased socially across multiple platforms and navigated and things like that. Or, okay, now it's in the phase where we need to add a lay abstract so the regular audience can read it because they'll say, you know, RNA-seq, single cell RNA-seq coup, what? Yeah, exactly. Like, and, and, and those are things that we, you know, we'll think about, right? but we don't really kind of know a lot about. And I really think that is something that kind of has to really push the system a little bit more. I know it's extra check boxes and balances, but we're not actively thinking about how we're training people anymore. We're so focused on final products. And that's what I think the publication's for. But I think that we're missing the true essence of sometimes where we can use things and opportunities to really cultivate change. And that's kind of what I've been doing with the English draft sometimes to teach like, my staff like okay well it's on it's on online i think you have to finish this draft a little early so to the next one oh it's good you can upload it it's not the final one but i'm also teaching them how to be a pi if they wanted to be for exactly and how to review papers and update and okay read it again and is it communicating what i want exactly and so i feel like that training mode of that larger essence of things is not there so that's what I'm hoping this podcast is for, and then when I try to break the internet again with another DI <laughs> article, that's that's one of the things that I'm writing about right now. And I, I just really hope that we can really kind of understand one another in a much more approachable way so the science community can really do its due diligence to the public. And I also think that's what service really is. Mm-hmm. It's not about DEI. It's not about teaching. It's not about mentoring. Service is going to the public and teaching them about science. And mm-hmm. I think we have to really kind of think about how we're doing things differently. And so that's what this podcast is for, is to start kind of shaping the conversations and directions we should go. Because I think DEI and STEM ed and mentoring and teaching, everybody should do it. should count towards tenure. But service should be different. It is not about what you do at your institution. It's about how you communicate to the public what you're doing with their money. And why mm-hmm. it's important. And I think that's where we have to go. And it's an element of which we've lost. And so mm-hmm. that's the purpose of this and like its totality. But, you know, right now it seems a little mundane because I'm individually talking about episodes, but when they're viewed as a collection. As a whole. Yeah, that is that is the theme. And that's why I do that. And when there's opportunities that come my way, I think about the opportunity to cultivate, to be able to help other people kind of move it to the next stage. I've done many things where I may have done one thing and then I moved it to where now it's evolved into something else. And now other people have taken that opportunity over. And I, I feel like I'm a star. That's cool. So you have people that are already now building off of stuff that you've already done. Exactly. And that's the whole idea. That's the whole idea, man. So I just wanted to say thank you for your time. And I just wanted to ask you one quick last question. I always ask everybody, what are they drinking? 
So a lot of times people, you know, are drinking water, they're drinking Uh tea, coffee. What do you drink on a regular day basis? What do you drink in the evening times? That's the last question. Well, I mean, coffee is one of my number one go-tos. In the morning, I've been doing a lot of fiber shakes, you know, trying to get up, you know, a lot of fruit-based stuff. But I'm trying to drink more and more water every day. It's the lifeline. And I think that, I mean, we, you hear about it, we talk about it, but it's so easy, especially in the in the office, you could go hours without having a little bit of water, you know what I mean? And so, of course, fair share of wine and IPAs and a cocktail from time to time, but but these days I'm really trying to up my water intake. That's awesome. And then one thing, if someone could find out more about you, where would they go to be able to look you up? And then if they wanted to, you know, are you willing to have the Skype aside this type of situation where, you know, somebody could reach out maybe, you know, or do you have a day where you actually are communicating to the public about the things that you do? Because you're an extremely well-rounded person, mm. not like the, you know, normal where we say we're well-rounded or, you know, this person <laughs> plays sports or this person does this and does a little bit of everything. It's, yeah. it's truly you are enjoying your life. And I think it started from you like, when you did art and a physics degree at the same time, and yeah. you really have applied that. And that was a beautiful thing that you said, my wife and I go and enjoy this. My wife mm. and I go enjoy that. Mm. And, and, you know, whether you, we figure out exactly how to be balanced or not, you you have it together. And I think those are the things that are most important. You're publishing, you know, Nature Immunology, I think it was this year. And then last That's year, right. Science Thank you. Papers. And I think at the same time, you have a healthy home life. And those are things that, you know, I think should be celebrated. So my last question to you is, where do you find the opportunity of helping others? And where can, you know, you give a little bit of words of advice to others to be able to kind of take home a nugget and like meditate on it? It doesn't have to be a final thought, but it's something that could be posed as a question for people to kind of do some inward searching. To your question, I I love public speaking engagements. I haven't done as many of them these days, just over the course of the tenure process. But I I really enjoy communicating science to the public, and you know, kind of at that interface of science and culture. And there's a you know, UC Berkeley News has done a couple of interviews talking a little bit more about the programs that we do here in the lab and also outside of the lab. You can get that from the the website for the College of Computing Data Science and Society or the UC Berkeley News website. And I link to those on my uh, my lab's website as well. I'm not as active on social media as other faculty. You know, I don't have as big of a Twitter profile. I try to I try to promote my students' publications and their graduation and so forth. But I'm, I'm less active on that platform. But one platform that I think kind of embodies a lot of the, the ideology that, that I try to communicate to not only students who are mentoring from in it with a science relationship, but also more broadly, is, is our Next Generation Faculty Symposium, which is a symposium that's now in its, in its fourth year that I developed with Professor Polly Fordyce, a professor down at Stanford University, and colleague Professor Jason Sello at UCSF. And we, we do a little bit of talking in this symposium, but it's primarily a forum to highlight really out-of-this-world postdocs who represent a range of backgrounds to try to improve both the quality and the diversity of candidate pools in our faculty searches. And over the past few years, those communities that we've formed and begin to grow through the Next Generation Faculty Symposia, for me, really 
and I'm taking some liberties here, but for me, really highlight what I like about this job because you know we can see this. So this is a symposium that specifically provides ten-minute talking platforms for postdocs who are working in a broad field of quantitative biology. So this is bioengineering, systems biology, computational biology, biomedical sciences, biophysics, biochemistry, stuff like this. And in the symposium, you see an incredibly diverse range of research topics. You know, you see people working on everything from evolution to immunoengineering to microscopy and neuroscience. And so you get a really amazingly broad snapshot of what people from these backgrounds are doing. And you also see a broad range of people right? People that have gone through different experiences, both in their academic career and also in their personal lives and how they got here today. And I think for trainees, it's been a really amazing platform to see, you know, multiple examples of what you can do. Because one of the things I always like to say is that get advice from mentors, get advice from the people that you look up to, your role models, but don't try to follow any one person's path. Because nobody that you look up to got there by following somebody else's path, right? And so the best you can do is see as many different routes to what you call success as possible and then create your own. And then that those routes help you build a map, the landscape of the career. And so the Next Generation Faculty Symposium really gives you know an opportunity to see all these different ways that success can be embodied in science. And specifically from people that identify as Black, Hispanic, Latinx, you know, indigenous populations. And I think that's really important because the truth is that there are, while we are underrepresented in higher education, there is an incredible number of us. And I think that visibility is more and more important. And I think for me, that forum is a place where I feel like captures sort of the, the breadth of the things I'm interested in and the things that my community are interested in, you know? That is really cool. So I guess final thoughts, what are your kind of, you know, your keywords that you want people to take home from the podcast about you or about science, about life or, you know, anything. I think the most relevant final thought for this discussion is that for me, these conversations are some of the funnest part of our job. You know, talking with people that have shared interests and people that have different perspectives and people that you enjoy talking to and conversations that lead to something bigger than they were before. That's why we're, we do science. I mean, science in a lot of ways has been characterized as a solitary endeavor, right? But the truth is now more than ever, it's a social medium, right? Science is by definition social because it's only in the communication of your science that you have impact. A result doesn't mean anything if nobody knows about it. Exactly. And these avenues that we have, the platform that you've created to have conversations with people that you enjoy talking to, people that you learn from, are the the highlight of our job. And so really thank you so much for having me and thank you for providing this platform for me, but also for others to not only speak, but to listen. It's a really special thing you're doing and I really appreciate it. Of course, man. Thank you so very much. And thank you everyone for listening. And this is the episode of the podcast. Continue to join us because there's more out there. There's more people to talk to. And I know you're going to like this second season. And I think keep the viewership going because we, we're going to try to renew for a third season. So thank you.